Welcome to Piedmont Arts. I'm Rachel Stewart. One of the most extraordinary figures in American classical music is someone you may never have heard of. Mary Cardwell Dawson lived from 1894 to 1962, and she was a musician, teacher, and founding director of the National Negro Opera Company, the longest-running all-Black opera company in this country. Her dream was to bring opera to African-American audiences, and for the most part, that dream came true. Now her story is being told in a play with music called The Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson, which is being produced by Opera Carolina February 15th through 17th and stars internationally acclaimed mezzo-soprano Denise Graves. The play is written by Sandra Seaton with original music by Kennedy Center composer-in-residence Carlos Simon. Today, I am very honored to have Denise Graves as my guest on Piedmont Arts. She's one of opera's most renowned singers, and she's performed in the world's great opera houses and concert halls, places like the Metropolitan Opera, Covent Garden, Lyric Opera of Chicago, just to name a very few. She also uh, sang at the inauguration of George W. Bush, and she's appeared many times on TV, whether it's in opera productions or if you have children of a certain age, you may remember Between the Lions <laughs> when Denise would make appearances on that program. So Denise Graves, it's such a, a pleasure to have you on Piedmont Arts, and thanks for joining us today. Rachel, thank you so very much for having me, and thank you so very much for doing this story about this great American hero. Let's start there. Can you tell us about Mary Caldwell Dawson, who I want to point out was from North Carolina or born in North Carolina in Madison. Madison. So tell us a little bit about her. So she wanted to be an opera singer and she went to the New England Conservatory. It was difficult for her while she was there. They kept sort of moving the goalposts, but she eventually graduated in 1925 and she wanted to sing on the world's stages and make a name for herself and share her talent. But the apartheid at that time prevented that from happening. So her response to that was, well, then I'll create my own opera house. And so she did that. Um, and as you said in your introduction, it was the first of its kind, the longest running, the most successful and run by a woman. And she engaged some over 1600 artists. Um, and then the uh, orchestra and the the conductors, the designers, the directors. And she had this all black opera company and took them all over the United States, um, including the Metropolitan Opera when uh, um, black artists were not singing there at that time. It was the first time that the Metropolitan Opera had allowed an independent opera company to rent the space. And then the union would not allow them to perform standard repertoire. So they performed a piece by a wonderful uh, violinist and composer, Andrew Cameron White. Uh, and they performed a piece called Owanga to great acclaim at the Metropolitan Opera. They, they later on went to Carnegie Hall and many different places. She had chapters in Detroit, in Chicago, in New York, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., where she lived in, of course, Pittsburgh, where the National Opera House sits. She taught everything she knew, so she was a wonderful pianist as well. And so this old Victorian home, which still is in um, Pittsburgh today, she had a music school, so she taught some over 600 kids. She taught language, and she taught piano, and she taught voice. And while she did not have the career that she thought she wanted, her calling was actually much greater. She launched the careers of so many amazing people, Lillian Avanti and Camilla Williams and Robert McFerrin, the, the dad of Bobby McFerrin. And these were some of the people that she also taught at the music school, but also 
the National Negro Opera House was an access house. So this was during segregation during the Jim Crow era. And so when jazz greats like Duke Ellington, Lena Horne, Cab Calloway, Pearl Bailey, all those wonderful artists were coming through Pittsburgh, they couldn't stay at the hotels, so they would stay at the Opera House. So this is just amazing, you know, what she was able to create in her lifetime and garnered a lot of support. As you can imagine, I'm sure that was not easy for her during that time, but she had the support of Eleanor Roosevelt, who has who 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 is an amazing woman herself. And you know, we we all probably know of Marian Anderson because of Eleanor Roosevelt, had had it not been for her telling the daughters of the American Revolution, this is not okay. And then of course the famous concert that happened in 1939 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, um, which catapulted Marian Anderson even into greater stardom. So, but she was a supporter of the National Negro Opera Company and the work that Mary Cardwell Dawson was doing with her all black opera company. And so the what we're bringing there, the passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson talks about a day in the life of Mary Cardwell Dawson and what it was like for her to get venues to allow an all-Black opera company to come and perform. There had been a series of storms going on, and so no one would allow them to perform inside. They all had outside venues, and and they're losing, you know, ticket sales and support and this the, this kind of thing. And so what we see in the passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson is this this woman who had this incredible dream for herself. And then she was able to translate that into something I, I think much, much greater and much longer lasting. And um, so for, for me, it's an enormous honor to know about her, the story, what she created. She's considered the first woman of opera. Who would have known that? Uh, you know, I, I did my studies at the conservatory, my master's degree and all this, and I didn't learn about, you know, all of the tremendous contributions that Mary Cardwell Dawson made in, and created a stage for African-American artists, you know, to perform back at a time when that was not allowed, particularly in the refined arts space. And so it's for me an enormous honor because I've been able to have the career that I've been able to have because of the seed she planted this incredible trailblazer and this pioneering woman who was an impresaria and just incredibly brave and wanted to bring the refined arts to African-Americans and to give them an opportunity to perform. And um, what she created was a lasting image. You know, I this past summer, this last summer, my daughter was, we were scrounging for tickets for her to go to Beyonce's Renaissance tour. And I was thinking, you know, we wouldn't have known about Beyonce and even this if this great woman had not done this groundbreaking work that she that she did. I was going to ask you, like when you uh, heard her story for the first time, because I really uh, I've been working at this station for I don't even want to admit how many years and I have not heard of her. And you said just said you didn't learn about her when you were in conservatory. How did she come to your attention? And why right. do you think we don't know about her because she's so influential? Well, I think it's not just her. And we can get into this conversation a bit later. And that's some of the work that I'm doing with my foundation at the Denise Grace Foundation is to bring bring into rightful prominence these great um, artists who have been left out of the telling of the American story. In her case, the American story, we have people like Chevalier Saint-Georges, 
who came before Mozart, right? We have Blind Tom, we have all these uh, uh, incredible artists who have been around, you know, 1600, 1700s, but we just did not learn about them. Mary Cardwell Dawson, the National Negro Opera Company, the work that she was doing was not being covered by mainstream America. So that's probably one of the reasons why we didn't know about her. But if you if you go back to some of the Black dailies, there's all kinds of information about her and where she was able to, you know, they weren't able to perform in a lot of the, you know, major venues that we know of. So a lot of that wasn't covered. You know, she performed in the churches and the, and places like that and outside. And so, but I learned about her actually many years ago when I was working at Pittsburgh Opera, we were doing the Summer King um, there. And of course, the National Negro Opera House is in Pittsburgh. And there was a trip one day to go visit the National Negro Opera Company, but I was called to rehearsal and was unable to go. And then many years after that, fast forward, during the pandemic, there was a, a student who was singing on the steps of what was formerly known as the National Negro Opera Company, now known as the National Opera Company, talking about this great woman, Mary Cardwell Dawson, and how people don't know about her. And she was she was singing on the steps of what was a really dilapidated, broken, uh, old, you know, Victorian home where, you know, the windows were out and the columns were missing and the roof had collapsed and all these things. She was talking about this incredible monument that is part of our American history that people don't know about and this great woman. And so we were very fortunate in that the whole world was on pause at that time. I was really worried and concerned about so many of my students because so many of them had just begun to embark on a career. Some of them had been out for a few years and were was able to make their living um, as performing artists. And then all of a sudden, global interruption. And so I was in touch with my students to see how they were doing and what was going on and how, uh, how people were getting along. And I created this, online. one of the things that I love to do is to cook. So if some of my students had a recital or an audition tour or they had to get prepared for, you know, they had to prepare uh, audition tapes or whatever it may have been, sometimes what I would do is I would have everybody come over and I would have them run through their program and then I cook a big dinner. So I tried to create this virtually with a lot of my students because so many of them were just lost and we were all scared and nobody really understood what this meant and what this meant particularly for singers because we were considered to be the super spreaders right and so <laughs> i created this online platform called cooking with denise and basically the platform was, was, was a lifestyle show where we would go into our kitchens and the heart of the home right where and speak with people about what was going on or, or their specific projects so some of my students and sometimes luminaries in the business this was simultaneous as I was finding out about Mary Cardwell Dawson. So during the cooking show, you know, I was stirring the soup and I'd say, hey, had you guys heard about this wonderful impresaria named Mary Cardwell Dawson? And this was done live on StreamYard. And we had over 250,000 viewers watching the cooking show because what we did is I went to a lot of the opera houses where I had worked and I asked if they would if they would broadcast this on their platform. So we had, you know, Washington National Opera, the Kennedy Center, Peabody Conservatory, all these wonderful institutions broadcasting the cooking show. 
And so I started talking about, have you heard about this woman named Mary Caldwell Dawson? And all of these comments started coming. Well, I don't know about her. You know, do you know she created this National Negro Opera Company and blah, blah, blah. And she took, you know, all these singers all over the place, including the Metropolitan Opera. And, you know, she sang outside on the uh, floating barge in the Potomac. And sometimes some people would know and say, oh, I heard about her or my grandmother told me something about her or I heard a little bit about this story. And it became a subject that we discussed in the kitchen. People were saying, who is this woman? Francesca Zambello, who is artistic director at Washington National Opera, said, Denise, why don't we have an opera created about her life? And I said, are you kidding me? I mean, you know how often in this business projects are presented with all really good intentions, but it, it usually comes down to, you know, Feasibility comes down to finance and all those things. And she said, let's do it. So God bless her. She did. It's called The Passion of Mary Caldwell Dawson, which which your audiences, I hope, will come to see February 15th through the 17th. And we premiered that at Glimmer Glass in 21, and then again in 22. And then in 23, for the launch of, by that time I had started the foundation, but it was all inspired um, by... Mary Caldwell Dawson and my outrage at these magnificent artists that have contributed to our cultural fabric, but that we know nothing about. The fact that mm -hmm. I've been able to have a career for over 45 years on the stage due to this woman, this godmother, right, that I don't know anything about. And so also timing, again, was an important thing because we had the attention of everybody because people were home and we couldn't move and we couldn't go anywhere. And that's how it came to be. So how how many times has it been performed? And I so guess Opera will, Carolina is sort of, you know, right. one so of the first, right? It's one of the first. It'll just be the fourth time. So we, or the third time, depending on how you look at it, because we did it at Glimmer Glass in 21 and 22. And then Washington National Opera did it at the Terrace Theater in um, January 22nd, January 19th through 22nd uh, of 23. And so now it looks like, and we certainly hope, that it will have legs and have a life and we'll be able to go around and tell this magnificent story of this great, you know, it, it had it, had you asked before then who were sort of the women general directors, and there are not many in the first place in America, I maybe would have said, you know, Artist Kranich and Chicago or Sarah Caldwell in Boston. Or... No, it was Mary Caldwell. Also. Well, yes, they were, but also... The first one was Mary Cardwell yeah, Dawson. It was Mary Cardwell Dawson. And who would have known that the first lady of opera was this little black lady? She was a teeny tiny little thing, you know, <laughs> who loved singing and wanted and loved beautiful music and wanted to bring that to the masses. So, yes, Opera Carolina is, is amongst the first to be able to present this to the public and to be able to tell this very, very important American story. So it's called a, a play with music. Can you tell us a little bit about why it's called that as opposed to opera? That's right, because there's a lot of the spoken word. We went around and around in the sort of ideation stage as to whether this would be a theatrical piece, whether it would be a one-woman show, whether it would be just a play. And we thought, well, no, we can't have just a play. There has to be music. And so... I, I would say it's probably an equal, particularly now, an equal balance of the spoken word and, and also music. 
there's a lot of familiar music because it is she's running an opera company and that this particular story that we're telling is in one of the days that they're getting prepared for the opera Carmen the night before was La Traviata. So there is there's music from Traviata, there's music from Carmen, of course. And then that's sort of interwoven with some new works of art by Carlos Simon and then Sandra Seaton is the playwright. So it's an equal amount of spoken word and music. So that's why they call it a play with music. You mentioned your Denise Graves Foundation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity just to say a little bit more about that and what uh, what you what you're doing with that and and some of your goals there. Thank you so much and you know I'm we're proud to be coming there to Charlotte and we have some board members that are there. The foundation really was inspired by learning about Mary Cardwell Dawson and so many others like her, you know, like Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, like Cicerita Jones, like, you know, Marie Salika Williams, uh, Matawilda Dobbs, and these wonderful, wonderful artists. We want to be able to celebrate them, to be able to tell their stories of triumph, their stories of struggle, their stories of great success, the, all of the groundbreaking that these wonderful artists did that contributed to our cultural fabric that have given way to the artists that we know today, some of the household names that we know in the classical arts refined space because of the work that had been previously done by these great artists that we don't know anything about. So that's when the Denise Graves Foundation was formed. And so the foundation sits at the intersections of social justice, American history, and the classical vocal arts, because we were looking at what has been left out of the telling of our story, right? And so the foundation is is about celebrating those great um, artists. And we have three different programs that are an expression of the mission, vision, and values of the foundation's work. So the foundation is about creating a more equitable and diverse classical vocal arts landscape. And we have three different programs, all with the word voices in them. So we have shared voices, which is our HBCU conservatory exchange, where we have a consortium of HBCUs and uh, conservatories. So we've got Fisk and Morehouse, and Morgan and Howard. And then we've got Oberlin College, Manhattan School of Music, Peabody Conservatory, and the Juilliard School, where the students, faculty, and administration all work together. And we look at the what the HBCUs does well and, and the resources of the conservatory. And it's an exchange where we learn um, uh, and share with each other. Then we have another program called Hidden Voices, which this work would fall under that hidden voices, and that's about creating works of art. So whether it's, you know, plays with music or uh, song cycles or books or calendars or documentaries that will use works of art to be able to tell those stories. And then another, another piece called, uh, another program called Generational Voices, which is looking at the emerging artists that are coming out today and pairing them. We sort of book in their careers so that they are hidden no more, lost no more with a current day artist and a legend in the industry. So we've, we've got an up and coming artist to, it's a mentoring program. So we look at everything that Mary Cardwell Dawson created because we don't have empresarias anymore. And there's no one really 
shepherding and looking at the career and guiding the career and mentoring the career of a young artist, right? So that is what that program does. And, and we work with, we're very interested in singers who are fantastic, who are uh, excellent instruments, who have excellent passion and want to trailblaze their own path in this um, industry. And so we work with those wonderful um, artists who are interested in um, making a name for themselves, they're interested in pursuing a path in the classical vocal arts. So we've got programs that's K through 12, and then we've got the collegiate level at the conservatory, and then we've got the emerging artists. So those speak to the three pillars, the social justice, American history and classical vocal arts and our three programs are reflections of that. And those three programs interlock and fit together like puzzle pieces and work together as well. Wow. And this, this has been going on for what, two or three years? Is that it? Yeah, we're, so we're very, very young. We've been incredibly fortunate to have the support of the Mellon Foundation, of the Ford Foundation, of wonderful organizations like SNR, Evermay, like and Klein Pohanka. And that's been one of the greatest surprises And because I had no idea that this is how my life would go, but that's what's so interesting about life, right? We, we get up in the morning, we think we have a plan for what might happen that day. And then things can be very, very, very different. And this was such a, an incredible surprise to me. But I will tell you that out of 45 years of telling stories, the stories that I want to tell now are those stories of these great Americans that um, we don't know about and that have created the world that we have today. You know, this is a profession where you have to be incredibly myopic, right? It's always about like what you're doing, particularly as a singer, because you are the instrument itself. There's a fair amount of neuroses that goes along with it, all well-deserved, and uh, I'd like to say. And I had been so focused on my own work and my own development. It's been one of the greatest surprises that the thing that moves me now and the thing that I want to do now is to invest into the next generation of uh, up and coming artists. And I get as much, if not more, satisfaction from that than I did in having a solo uh, career for so many years. So I'm grateful for all of that and 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 grief, grateful and excited for the audiences to see this new, you know, generation of beautiful artists that are coming along and to be able to tell. So so we say that, you know, we we pay homage and we pay it forward at the same time. Um we are interested in the whole life of of singers, whether they are dead or alive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it strikes me listening to you talk about this that you, um, I'm sure this isn't lost on you, but there's a big parallel here with Mary Cardwell Dawson's trajectory and what you're describing as your own trajectory. Isn't it something? I'm I'm just yeah. incredibly grateful to her. And, and, and I know that that was not easy. What she did um, is just incredible how life evolves. Right. And the unfolding that I see happening in my life now is not anything that I could have um, expected, but she has given us uh, so many gifts in so many ways. Right. And uh, yes. So to answer that question, yes, I do see uh, clearly a tremendous parallel 
and and what she has done and and what my life is shaping out to be at this stage. Well, Denise Graves, I want to thank you for sharing all of this and for helping um, more people know about Mary Cardwell Dawson. As you rightly point out, such an interesting figure that is maybe finally going to get her due and her recognition. Isn't that wonderful? I'm just so happy for her spirit. I hope she's dancing a jig from wherever she is because I'm just so excited about this. Denise Graves is going to play the role of Mary Cardwell Dawson in Opera Carolina's production of The Passion of Mary Cardwell Dawson, which will run February 15th through 17th at CPCC. And um, again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this and and sharing this with uh, WDAV's listeners. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm grateful to you, Rachel, for doing the story. So thank you for helping to get that story out there and to be able to share about this wonderful, mighty woman. You've been listening to Piedmont Arts, and I'm Rachel Stewart.